0: This podcast is offered by Black Mountain Zen, on the web at blackmountainzen.org. Our public offerings are made possible by the kind donations from people like you. You've worked hard, peeling away the preoccupations, the tightness of mind and body. The urgency of your to-do list, Um, and experiencing directly the gifts of practice. You know, one way to think about the four foundations of mindfulness. You know, the the mind, body, the um, body, breath the Vedana and the mental state of the mind, mind mind-states, that as they're cultivated, as they're engaged, then the clarity that that immersion has brought forth, then the dharmas just sort of appear wherever you look wherever you look at the conditioned existence that's arising. It's like, oh. And that looking, that attending, um, is a beautiful thing. So now, at this stage in the retreat, to attend, to observe, to soak up what's being experienced. Uh, Seeing more of of the subtle movements of particular mental states. What happened when I said, printing boarding passes? <laughs> did you get on a plane and go somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> Begin the routine of closing or winding down. Yeah. How did that register? Yeah. And as we head towards transition, you know, do you reach forward and try to get there a little sooner? Or bring it here so you can start to relate to it already? Yeah. And what is it to have the equanimity, the poise, the balance? the clarity to just observe, to, to, to let it be what it is. There's an intriguing line by a poem by Wallace Stevens called The Snowman, and the last part of it says, and to see nothing that isn't there, and to see the nothing that is. The line before just simply says, and she herself beholds and sees nothing that isn't there and the nothing that is. maybe we conjure up the thought of getting on a plane, of going somewhere. Uh, But there is no plane. There is no going. There's just the momentary creation. Maybe even an image. Maybe um an associated feeling. Or maybe at this point in retreat, you, you can even attend to how the body responds to that image, that notion. Does yeah. soft, open, attentive, stable mind start to contract, start to be energized by excitement. Um, The clarity of seeing that. Mm. To see nothing that isn't there and to see the nothing that is it is as we engage that as we experience it as we see it um, it's momentary not to say it isn't consequential But it's momentary and it teaches us, it illustrates the dharma of codependent arising, impermanence, flickering energies that create our life are that. They flicker, you know. This, as we go through retreat, we start to undo the fixedness of our world. We start to do the way we're embroiled in it. Or Gill's image of taking off one layer of clothing and then another layer of clothing. Oh. And then, at this point, to be able to see, well, what layer of clothing do I put on? What layer of clothing do I put on when I hear, if you want to print your boarding pass? Maybe you thought, yes, I'll go and have my boarding pass printed. Wait a minute. I'm just going to Palo Alto. (laughs) But it feels like a long flight from here. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And how does this layer that I'm putting on, how does it feel? Is it stiff? We've been exploring all week, the intimate yoga of releasing breath, releasing body and releasing mind, that as we're entering into awareness, that what's, <laughs> what's being held in place? usually through some contraction, the product of grasping. What's being held in place starts to loosen, dissipate. And then at some point, um, around the evening, tomorrow morning, as we say our goodbyes, We put back together so-called my life, so-called the world reality. And can we watch that assembly? Can we see it take place? Can we start to notice the significant characteristics? Does your mind heart reach out for what will bring um, satisfaction, enjoyment, contentment? Does it reach out for what to worry about? Oh, I've got to do that. Hmm. And what kind of embodiment do either of those create? It's a marvelous teaching. Because in terms of having the insight, being the insight of seeing conditioned existence, it arises when we see it in action. When the body breath, the Vedana and the mental states have been illuminated with sati, then these creations start to become apparent in the equanimity to stay upright, to stay in a state of balance that can attend and observe. Many years ago, there was a scientific study done. They they created a biosphere. They wanted to look at aspects of ecology. So they created a biosphere and they put all sorts of plants within it. And they put some trees in it. And a very interesting uh, consequence became apparent. Inside the biosphere, there was no wind. So the trees couldn't hold themselves up. Somewhere in the process of having to withstand the winds, the the trees developed a resilience, a strength. Um. This is a quality of equanimity. That, That balance is not rigid. It 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 has within it a responsiveness uh, to the winds of life. In Japan, there's a little called a little doll called Daruma doll. It it's a shorthand uh, term for Bodhi and Daruma, and then it's one of those little dolls that has a large weighted base. So if you push it it bounces back up, you know. And the reason it's associated with Bodhidharma, the finder of Zen, is, is that this resilience is one of the essential characteristics of the way, of practising. And if we think of that, and then we think that right in nature we see that that resilience is a product of being blown around by the winds of life. What is it to be blown around by the wind of And this evening at 7.30, we will start our closing process. Does your mind leap into mental arithmetic? Okay, that's so many R's and then so many R's. And then freedom. Or is it the reverse? You think, no, I'm just starting to settle. (laughs) Um, So, not to relate to the winds that arise, the thoughts, the anticipations, you know, the mental states. As somehow contaminants, you know, that are dispelling the purity of your retreat mind. But more to think that, you know, retreat creates as best it can an environment for sati to flourish. Yeah. But just in practical terms, if we think about it, to take it into our lives, to let it become adaptable, resilient, insightful, yeah. for how it can discover what kind of virtue, integrity, sila, is it, is required to help sustain mindfulness, to help shine a light on the path. Um, meeting these winds that arise. The same way we learn the factors of awakening, then we get to put them into action. Maybe you were sitting and thinking, Oh finally my chest is releasing and moving freely with the breath. And then you get all caught up in thinking about some extremely important thing to think about. <laughs> and and you notice that one of the consequences of it was that the chest started to tighten. This isn't a great failure. This is just cause and effect. This is just conditioned existence. This is just another state of being offering itself. And now this. Now that you've noticed, can you contact and experience it. And in your astute observance, is the mental state and the physical state linked? And as you attend to the breath and the body, does that affect either or both? As the body starts to soften, does the mind start to soften? And how is the energy of it, the virya, in those settled moments where the body had Something like a, a tingling that correlated with presence, with concentration in the moment. Can that help you see... How do you put together the world? How it's held with conviction? And as it comes together, what are the accompaniments? You know? Is there desire? Is there aversion? Is there a nagging worry? Is there a specific worry? Really? Can we see what's happening so thoroughly that we can engage it in now, that it can be part of what's happening here? Hmm. And how long is its lifespan? Huh? Does it last for a period of meditation? And does it fade with the exhale? Or is it still lingering when you leave the meditation hall and go down and start to eat dinner? Yes, the mind of retreat as it starts to release the hindrances, as it starts to be absorbed in the factors of awakening. um, It's joy, it's ease start to invite us into a trust, start to invite us into um, a willingness to be present. But there's a marvelous, utterly practical, resilient teaching that comes as we let that presence engage what arises not that you know not that retreat in itself doesn't have its own internal complexities and challenges but now we're adding to that the world according to me that we came from, and now we have this marvelous opportunity, as Gil would say, to shine a flashlight on it, and maybe for more than a second, maybe even for more than three breaths, Maybe we can sit and watch some anticipation rattle around. Hmm. After lunch, Gil said to me, at nine's about boarding passes, and i had these associated thoughts about boarding passes about going places but i'm not going anywhere but the thought of having a boarding pass was appealing <laughs> 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 i wonder if i can go and just ask for one <laughs> And it is something of a shift in our practice. Um. I think of it as a reckless and shameless shift. Um. I think we all know that we create a lot of problems for ourselves with the way we create our version of the world and the way we grasp at it and push it away. Uh, But so what? (laughs) How wonderful to see it appear. How wonderful to see um, what's associated with what. The array of your anticipations, maybe as you pull forward something to worry about or something to struggle with, Um, you can notice the intensity of it. (coughs) Oh, I think that's my number one worry. I think that's top of the list. That's my favorite. (laughs) And you can watch how much energy flows into it. And does the inner dialogue intensify? and recklessly and shamelessly breathe it in and let it be embodied. Release it with the exhale. Hmm. What use is our practice if it can't hold everything we are? And how wonderful our practice If it can start to shine a light on places we tend not to notice, we tend to try to avoid or suppress. And what a perfect opportunity at this time where we have established some equanimity. where we have established some tranquility and joy, where we have established some samadhi, the capacity for continuous contact. In a way, what I'm suggesting to you is that the intention to meet the moment doesn't have to be contingent upon that the moment is inclined towards pleasantness that the moment is inclined towards a deeper settling yeah. in a way We can say, equanimity is not making a problem of having a problem. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's what's coming up. Usually, in, in, in our more usual states of consciousness, the associated contraction the the associated distress, the associated aversion, uh, the associated uh, agitation and reactiveness that tend to dissipate our mindfulness. But can we endeavor to sustain mindfulness in the middle of it. It's a reckless and shameless activity. It's reckless. Who the heck knows what's going to happen if I just open up to that? And it's shameless because when we start to look carefully at what comes up for us, especially as we start to rebuild the world according to me, the range of stuff we come up with is amazing. You know, you know in our more usual life, we have the comfort of blaming others for it. <laughs> oh, that Donald Trump. <laughs> what a great service he does us. <laughs> sitting on your cushion here." know. I was like, nope, it's all yours. <laughs> that person's not in the room. <laughs> you are not in that situation. You're here. Yeah. And it, it, it enables for us an extraordinary information about our own being. And to remind ourselves that sati, mindfulness, awareness, doesn't judge, you know, it doesn't fix, that no. the admonition is, watch it arise, watch how it is, watch it fall away. The admonition, the basic principle, doesn't change whether we're saddling into an absorption of body and breath and mental factors, listening to the sign arise without even giving it a name. No. It doesn't change from that beautiful state to conjuring up, or something arises of the world according to me. This time tomorrow I will be whatever whatever and it'll be like this and I hate it <laughs> Or I can't wait <laughs> it'll be so great you know? That problem I have with that person you know they're not here, only your version of them, that apparently you close, cold, close to your heart, because it stirs up a lot of feelings. To see nothing that isn't here, Another way to express that is to acknowledge what is here, to acknowledge what is being created and, and present here. And and there's something in our, um, you know, in a way what I'm trying to say is if we approach this period of transition with a certain attitude, you know, it can teach us so much. You know, often out of our sincerity and our dedication, the thought can come up. Well, retreat is so wonderful, but how do I do this in my daily life? Um, This is how we do it. We take the version of our so-called daily life that's arriving here. And who says that's the most relevant uh, version of your daily life? You do. It's the workings of your being that brings it here. So you have this wonderful chance to attend to what's relevant, provocative, important for you. how do I do this in my daily life? Um, We bring it here, we let it teach us, and then there are other practical things. Um, In this attitude that meets with sati, the pleasant, the unpleasant, the settled, and the unsettled, Um, we're discovering resilient sati. We're discovering that um, whatever way our mind might say, well, that moment on the third day when I was really settled, and my body was like floating on the cushion, and staying present was effortless. That's the real thing. What if we say, yes, that was the real thing, and every other state of consciousness is also the real thing. It's just a different set of attributes. And I would suggest to you, if we don't do that, how will our practice include all of what we are? How will our practice include all of the ways life unfolds within and without? So this resilience, the, this widening of what it of what's willing to be experienced and connected to, mm. it creates a kind of pliability, flexibility in our consciousness. No. It creates an adaptability yeah. so that our practice is not just, well, under these circumstances, I do just fine. But if I go fall outside of them, then I just fall completely apart. Yeah. We do fall out of them. With the teaching of the Daruma doll, the other image they use in Japan, is they use the image of the bamboo. The bamboo, when it's blown by the wind, it bends, and the bamboo can withstand terrific storms, very high winds. It comes back up. It has this resilience, you know. Sometimes say, bend but don't break. the function of the reckless, shameless practice, that um, as we watch ourselves be cascaded with different images and thoughts, that we don't put our energy into strengthening our armor to keep them away that we flow with them. We let them flow through. And when they bend us, they bend us. And when they flow through, we come back up shamelessly. And there's something in the mind that that helps to establish. A a resilience that can indeed experience the unpleasant, the challenging, the difficult psychologically, emotionally, situationally. We face all that And we come back to presence. Doesn't mean we're immune to it. Doesn't mean we've learned how to like put up some Buddha force field (laughs) (laughs) and not feel anything. Quite the opposite. I teach in Northern Ireland once the Dalai Lama came And there's there's been a lot of strife in Northern Ireland, actually, sectarian violence, killing, bombing. And um, this was in 2002. And I was there at the time, and I would watch him as he was told a story of some great difficulty someone had gone through, some great suffering. And he would become so saddened, almost distraught. And then we'd move on and then someone would tell a funny story and he'd be falling over laughing, you know? And I thought, he moves like the bamboo in the wind, you know, this is his great resilience. He'd move from place to place, experience to experience. And then at one point he, um, he was having one-on-one interviews with all the prominent politicians. And I was waiting outside, and they, as were some of them, and then they'd go in. And they'd go in looking quite formal and important. And they'd come out like kids who'd just been to see Santa Claus. (laughs) (laughs) But when you listened and watched the Dalai Lama carefully, he was extraordinarily ordinary. You know, a lot of the things he said, um, they weren't fantastic. you know, he's a very learned person in the Dharma. I mean, I've seen that side too. But just reaching out with humanness. Can we reach out into our lives with humanness? Yeah. When the world saddens us, can we be sad? When the world amuses us, can we be amused? And may be an even greater challenge. Can we just meet each one, each person? And the Dalai Lama said many things, and there was many intense and wonderful conversations. And then at one point he said, looking at us quite directly, he said, couldn't you just get along with each other? (laughs) (laughs) That wonderful, simple, direct teaching. couldn't you just get along with yourself? And you think, why are you asking the impossible? <laughs> <laughs> you want me to be myself? <laughs> but we've rehearsed and enacted our animosities so intensely and dedicatedly. What is it to explore deeply, to just get along with the world that you live in? And I don't mean that question in some profound, intricate, intellectual way. We would all line up as the Dalai Lama was coming in. And the Dalai Lama in the 80s stayed at one of our centers for a month. It's hard to believe that there was a time when the Dalai Lama wasn't famous, but there was. And he got to know the ins and outs of uh, the Zen way. And when you're a teacher, you have a little uh, cloth thing that you wear round your neck, and if you're a teacher, it's brown, you know. And I had one, and so I'd be standing in line with everyone else, and as he would walk past, he would elbow me, and say, "Zen teacher," ha ha ha. No. And so every day he would do the same thing. (laughs) You know. (laughs) Why can't we just get along? No. What a gift our practice is. What a treasure it holds out and says, here, this is who you've always been. Would you like to receive it? Um, How is it that we're relating to the world according to me? that causes such concern, confusion, challenge. Investigation. How do we meet it with um, a continuing application? effort, energy, virya. How do we find some continued sense of engagement that instead of contracting we flow? that we appreciate, that joy and tranquility are somewhere in there. Like think of the things that you do that you flow with them. You can even be working hard and be tired but in the flow it's almost more like play, you know, in contrast to the things you grit your teeth and push against, that exhaust you? Have you looking at the clock asking, is this over yet? And what is it to stay in contact, even with the unpleasant, even the things that make you sad? And the world is filled with such things. And what is it to have resilience in the middle of it? To accept the winds of life are going to push you this way and push you that way. You may try to escape them, suppress them, avoid them. But it won't work. This is the way of the seven factors. This is the... uh the great gift the Dharma has given us. And the Dharma comes alive through our own life. Thank you.